The Lord God planted a garden east in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittical. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Welcome to Conversing with the Text, a, no, a member of the Crown Rights Cast Network. This is Pastor Michael Ware. We are in Genesis 2, as we just heard. Last time we were together, we looked at the creation of man from dust and the understanding of knowledge that flows from this truth. Today we're going to look at the trees and the garden. We will also take a look at the implications from the text in reference to topology and typology And we'll also look at the rivers. And if we have time, which I don't think we're going to, we will look at the good and precious stones. Um, The gold and the precious stones, sorry. The first thing that we are told in this text is the fact that God planted a garden. So we might wonder, is this uh, some kind of miraculous event like the garden just sprouted up? Um, I do think that this is, uh, I do not think this is what we are being told here. And uh, there are two good reasons uh, that I believe this. First, the the, verb, the verbiage has changed. It changes here in this passage as to what's being done. And the second, there seems to be instruction uh, being given here to Adam. It seems to be that, that he's being shown something here. So let's look at these a little closer. Moses t- uh, tells us that Yahweh plants a garden. When we, when we see God creating things in the other places in this text and in chapter 1, we are told that God causes this or that it grows up or springs up from the ground. Now, here's the thing that we need to notice. God, especially in chapter 1, what we see, and we I think I pointed this out before, um, where where God states what he needs to do, and then he causes it to, to come to pass. So, you know, uh, so let us... Let us uh, Make man in our own image, and then in the image of God, man, uh, God made man. So that's that's a, a a prime example of what I mean. Um, but but it doesn't seem that's what's going on here. Rather, uh, it seems that God is selecting and then physically planting the trees that He wants in His garden. So it's like He He made them come up on day three, and then and then He takes them and He plants them and He gives them life like he had before he causes them to grow. So uh, he's like a master gardener, and he's selecting the most beautiful and those which are good for food to uh, furnish 
and in this in this sermon, I, I I talked about him furnishing his temple, and and that's what we're going to see later. The garden is, and so it's it's him physically taking and planting those select trees that were in existence in in Eden or or even in other parts of the world. Um, and and what we need to understand here is this is um, this is is an example. So next, Moses says that God planted this garden, and he placed the man in the garden. So he takes the man from the outer regions, right, outside of Eden, and he he forms the man. He takes the man and he plants a garden in front of the man, and then he takes the man and places the man in the garden. So we get this idea that God made Adam, and then there's there is in, uh, in front of Mr. Dustboy here, God plants the garden. God the Son then physically teals, selects and then plants the good trees in the garden. That's that's what we see. That's what we see going on here and and here's the beautiful thing about that. We 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 get the same sense from the New Testament. We get the exact same sense from the New Testament and and we can tie all this together uh as we go um uh if 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 we have time, if if we're able. So you know he, he does this. Then, this then means that God was saying, just like this, you will plant me sanctuary everywhere, all over the place, all over the place. So just as with us, God was not just telling Adam what he wanted him to do, like take dominion, right? He says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion of the earth, Right, but God is showing Adam what it means to take dominion, and we remember our episode about dominion and how I'm uh, trying to explain that it it's not this dominating other people. It could not mean that that is sinful, and there was no sin. Not only that, God doesn't command sin; He doesn't command or tempt anyone to sin. So that can't mean what people take dominion to mean. It means to beautify and control. It means to beautify and have authority over. So that's that's what that's what it is. And then Christ exampled that for him. Now we will see in Exodus that God describes in deep detail how the tabernacle was to be decorated. So all around there is cherubim and trees. This points to two understandings which with the trees of the garden. They grow up as God causes them. So what we need to understand is, as I said before, God is the cause of life. Now, we stated in our first couple episodes that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the deep, and He vivifies. He gives life to the creation, right? And so what what that causes is when God says, let you know, let these things grow up, let grass grow up, let the herbs grow up, let the bushes and the shrubs grow up, let the trees grow up. When he says these things, they're getting their life from that vivification. It is the source of life is God. And so here we see this same thing. God is causing them to grow up. He's causing them to live, and he's causing them to be fruitful. And this is the point of redemption, right? A return to the gospel, I mean to the garden, right? That's what the gospel is. It is a call back to garden, uh, you know, Edenic, Edenic, sorry, Edenic uh, life with God, having this close, intimate relationship with God where we are fruitful. But 
We must not miss that later in several places, trees are used as metaphors for men. Judges 9, 7 through 15. I won't read that. Read that for yourself. It points to this idea that, that men and trees are connected, and there's the, they, they, that the trees themselves can symbolize man. So this garden is pointing to the church and is a sanctuary. So this is not Adam and Eve's home, but their church. Right, so we often get this idea, uh, and it's humanistic, and so we have to get rid of it. We we have this um, perfect, uh, uh, un- or savage, yeah, this this perfect savage paradise uh, that that modern man and Christianity has destroyed, and we get this idea. You know, we we look at Pocahontas, and we we look at these stories and these tales, and you know, El Dorado and the City of Gold and, and how this paradise is lost. Now, what we have to understand is this, is this is sinfulness repressing the truth in unrighteousness. And let me show you what I mean. Yes, there was a fall. Yes, paradise was lost. The garden was paradise, and, and it was lost. But it wasn't the place that they lived. And, and here's what I want to show you. They were not savages. In fact, I would say Adam probably was the most intelligent man before Christ who ever lived. And, and except for Christ, whoever did live, he, he had all the knowledge and understanding that he had. And again, we talked about he didn't have experience. That's what the knowledge of good and evil, he didn't have the wisdom to apply what he knew. And so, so what we see here is Christ is planting his man trees— Right, that's what they represent. Man trees in in his garden, which is the church, and he is the one causing them to grow and giving them life. This is this beautiful picture of what the church is going to be. What the church is going to be. So the tree of life and the tree of knowledge were there, and these were sacramental. They were uh, they were sacraments. We often think of the restriction of the tree of knowledge as a permanent situation. So we think this is this is a poison tree. It's going to cause you to die. Don't uh, don't eat of it. But now remember, we talked about uh, sacraments before. It'd be really good to go back and listen to some of the sermons to get the fullest uh, definition of what I'm trying to say here. But but what we are seeing is the tree itself had no power to kill. Right, just like the tree of life has no power to give life, they're sacramental. They they are sacraments. They are sacraments, and so, um, and, and so the tree of knowledge, the restriction was only for a time. It seems very unlikely that this was going to be a perpetual situation. Why? Because we see that the second Adam only went through his testing for a time. It was not a perpetual tempting. He was not perpetually tempted like we think of Adam being perpetually tempted in the midst of the garden, always having this fruit that he can't have, right? Rather, Jesus faces the temptation, he passes the temptation, and then he moves on. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This does not mean that there were not times that Christ was not tempted to sin, and then he resisted that sin. Because remember, we are told... um, that Jesus was tempted in always like us, but without sin. Now, here's the thing: there, there was well, there were times of several testings, specifically tempting Jesus 
to fall in the same way of Adam. There was this severe testing, sorry, this severe testing. It was a time of severe, a severe test. And, and I would say it was made even more severe by the fact that he had to deal with hunger and thirst. He was all alone. He didn't have the beauty of the garden. He was in a desert. He was in the wilderness where, where Adam was in, uh, in the garden. So read Matthew 4, and when you do, notice it is very clear that all the things Satan tempts Christ with are things that Christ will receive from his becoming the new Adam. Think, think about what was tempting. What was the temptation? Hey, you're hungry. If you're the Christ, just make that stone right there bread and eat, buddy. Go at it. Go ahead. Take it before it's time. Take it before it's been given to you. Take it before it's been... Show your power and just satisfy yourself. Right? It's the exact same sin. Take a hold of this thing, make it food, and eat it, even though it's restricted from you right now. Even though it's restricted from you right now. Look at all these kingdoms of the world. Right? I'll give them all to you. I'll give you the authority over all of them. Just bow down and worship me. Right? We, we see the same thing, God upholding Christ and protecting him from death. Resurrection, anybody? And so we see these things actually come to Christ after, after his, his suffering, after he learns obedience, right? So Adam, Adam's sin is he's grabbing something that was not his yet, didn't belong to him yet. The same way, if Christ would have given in to those temptations, and we're not going to argue whether he could or could not. That's, I, I think that's, uh, you know, how many, how many angels can you put on the head of a pen? I mean, just it didn't happen. So we're, it, well, let's not get into that speculation. So, but but had he, he would have grabbed at something that did not belong to him yet. He had not he had not earned it yet. He had not he had not received it from the Father yet as reward for fulfilling his end of the covenant. So what the two trees provide is memorials to God and Adam. Now, when we think about memorials, we think about, oh, we're just remembering, right? We're just, we're just, rem- we're just being reminded, um, and, and we, this is the same kind of word. It's the same root that we use um, when, we, when we go to communion, right? We, in, the, in the words of institution, uh, Paul says that Christ says, do this, you know, take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in memorial of me. So what we need to get is a full-orbed understanding of what memorial is. For us, we only think about it uh, in the sense of it is something, that, a reminding, a remembering of. And, and we use that terminology in the, tran- in the English translations. But the word means more than that. And so we, we go to passages such as uh, Joshua chapter 4 where they're crossing over the Jordan. I think it's 4. Uh, where they're crossing over the Jordan. And as they're crossing, God tells them, hey, have the, the ark stand in the, in, the midst of, uh, in, in the midst of the river, uh, in the midst of uh, the Jordan, and have, have 12 men go across and, and gather up 12 stones and stack them up and make a memoriam uh, there on the other side of the Jordan in the plains of Jericho uh, at uh, Bethel. And, and when your sons, when your sons see it and say, what does this mean to you? 
you can tell them this is where God brought us across as on dry land, right? right? It's a memorial. It is a reminder. Now, what it's there for, it's not just to remember. It's not just for the fathers to remember, but for the fathers to point their sons to where their faith made met reality, where their, their faith met sight, okay? And so... So what we see here is this memorial is the same thing. It also reminds God of his covenant promises. So um, so this, this is what we need to understand. Uh, it, it is a memorial to God and Adam, that, uh, Adam to remind Adam, as long as you don't eat this fruit, you're, you're obedient. You're being obedient. As long as you're passing the test, as long as you don't eat of this fruit. Didn't last long, but but that's what it was there for. And that and that God was to be faithful to give him what he promised when he passes the test. So Jordan says that had Adam passed the test, he would have been given the tree of life. Then when Adam was ready, he would have been given the tree of knowledge. As he sat and learned from Christ as they week by week met on the Sabbath in the midst of the garden and, and uh, learned. He would have learned how to be a king. He would have learned how to have wisdom. He would have learned how to execute this knowledge properly that he had been given. This would have given, eternal life, uh, given him eternal life as king and translated Adam through the good dying to life with the Father. This is not what God had planned, though, but it does help us to set our minds as to what is being shown here. God was modeling for us both the heavens and the earth. The land of Eden is Adam's homeland. The garden is his temple, and the rest of the earth is his target. Right? So so he lived in a land, he worshipped in a sanctuary, and his goal was to make all of it look like that. All the rest of the world was look like that, and we've covered that. So before we move on from this, we have to remember that Jesus became our tree of life. He became the tree of life. The tree of life was the cross and had shunned the tree of knowledge until his resurrection. Now, think about this. Think about the many times that Jesus was asked to judge. Hey, my brother won't share the inheritance. Jesus says, "Who who made me a judge of you? I didn't come to judge. I didn't come to judge, he said. Right? He constantly said things like that. I didn't come to do my will. I didn't come to judge. I came to do the will of the Father. Rather than acting as a king, right, he 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 puts off the knowledge of good and evil. He puts off exercising that yet. He had not learned obedience through his suffering yet. Rather than acting as a king before his time, he acted as a priest doing only what he heard from his father. I come to do the will of him who sent me. I come to do the will of him who sent me. And I think I think that Pink rightly shows us that this is this is pointing to the the everlasting covenant the writer of Hebrews talks about that was between the father and the son and the holy spirit, right? The father promised the son a people out of the world, uh, an, uh, you know, his own people. And Christ promised that if he received those people, that he would die for those people. And the Holy Spirit promised to apply those those things to the people. So, why I'm covenantal, it just makes perfect sense. 
anyway, Jesus Jesus is pointing to uh, is pointed to here in the structure of the world. The four rivers coming from one points to the fact that the land of Eden is the highest point, right? So one river flowed out of Eden into the garden, and there they became four riverheads. They split into four, right? So water runs downhill, and thus Eden was the uh, was likely on top of a mountain. So many passages speaks of the mountain of God. Isaiah eleven nine comes to mind immediately for me. It's one of my favorite passages. Right, they will not hurt or kill in all in all my holy mountain, and and there is this idea that Zion and the holy mountain of God or the mountain of God is the church. We see as we go through the progressive revelation of the scriptures that we see that this motif becomes more and more prominent, uh, and especially especially after after the exile. Um, so Eden was the mountain of God; it was the throne of God on earth. So these four rivers are not the same rivers as we have today. Now, I want you to think through this because, I mean, this is where me and James Jordan kind of split company uh, on this topic. One of the things that we have to remember is the flood was a catastrophic event, right? Waters are bursting forth from uh, where they were under the earth. We have rain falling over all the earth. Um, and Jordan, Jordan even says it's, that it is the water above the firmament, firmament, which he says is above outer space. I don't know how that would work. Of course, God is not confined to physics, but you know he can do what he wants to. And I'm not denying that. I'm just saying uh, it, it doesn't make it doesn't make logical sense to me. But it doesn't mean it didn't happen. But what we do know is tons and tons and tons of water fell upon the earth, either through busting loose of springs uh, and other events. And, and so the whole earth is covered. All the, all the mountains of the earth, the text says, all the mountains of the earth are covered. Now, what we have to understand is two things. This was a rapid thing. This was not, I mean, 40 days, uh, there, was, there was rapid, rapid uh, water movement on the earth as the waters covered the, the, the land. And this would have caused great disturbance of the ground and movement of the ground. So, you know, mountains would not be mountains anymore, and, uh, you know, they would be laid flat. Many of them would be destroyed, and then they would be redeposited, and we, we, we know that's exactly what happened. We look at the geological evidence. Uh, and, and then layers upon layers are quickly, within a six-month period, laid down on top of each other. And what's – so – so – the the flood destroyed the old world, and that's what's represented in the Old Testament. The old world died. Uh, the the um, antediluvian world died before the deluge. That world died. It it was utterly completely destroyed, right? And and so what we find is these rivers are under hundreds of feet of sediment laid down by the flood. And so the question is, why are these rivers? Named after rivers, you know, why do these rivers have the same name as other rivers? Like, you know, we we know where the Euphrates is, and um, the river in chapter uh, fourteen, Hidla, Hildla, I can't say it, it, but whatever it is, it's actually the Tigris, and so it's it's 
It's another word for the Tigris. And we go, we know where those rivers are. We can, we can go to those rivers today. We can look on a map and find those rivers today. Why are those rivers, if they're not the same rivers, name that? Well, as I explained to the congregation during the sermon, it's very much like um, what we see going on in the New World, uh, and the New World being the United States. And so when uh, settlers from Europe came to the United States and began to build cities there, they began to take names that they were familiar with and name their new towns with. And that's why you have New Brunswick, you have because it's named after Brunswick. You, you have New York, which is York, England. You, you have Paris, Texas, right? So you don't, you don't go to Paris, Texas anticipating seeing the Eiffel Tower because it's in Paris, France. Not the same. Not even, you know, not the same location, doesn't look the same, not even the same population. So we, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. And so di- different, uh, different rivers named the same things. And these rivers then flowed to the lands that had valuable metals and stones. And I want to point out here that there is a reason that gold and precious stones have always been of value. They receive their value from God right here. Right here. Now, remember that, that we believe that Moses at least compiled Genesis, right? We at least, he, he at least compiled it. So we believe he's the final author of, of Genesis. That's where, that's where I stand um, probably always. Well, God may change my mind, but, uh, you know, we'll know in heaven. But, but what we do, we also believe that God's never had a time that his people didn't have the written word. Right, so Adam's here laying this down for us. He, right, he, he's, this is something he saw. And, and so this goal was good. Well, what else was good? Well, we see that at, eight, at the end of each day in chapter 1, so we know what good is. Good is the evaluation given to us by God about certain things in his creation. So God said... It was good. Adam didn't say it was good. God did. And this is innately known in us as a people. There's, there's never been a time that people threw gold away because it wasn't no good. right? They, man has always seen it as valuable. And no matter what part of the world or what religion or what culture is present at any time in history, it has always been seen as good. Right? It's always been seen as jewelry, something valuable, um, either as a status... Uh, setter or as uh, as money, right? So now we, we see that this is just like what we'll see later in Israel. The land flowed with milk and honey, right? We're told that several times in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy that this land flows with milk and honey. Now, it didn't literally, milk didn't flow like a river. It, it did not literally mean that. And God didn't think that they thought that it did. Right, so we we know that's not what this means. What it really meant was it was it signified in these terms fruitfulness. There was the fat and there was the sweet. Right, we see this over and over again. God tells us to take of the fat and eat of the sweet. Right, we're to we're to love these things because they are our sustenance. But the thing about Israel, the thing that Israel didn't have, it didn't have its own valuable metals and jewels. It didn't have gold. It didn't have precious stones. 
right? It was the outlying areas uh, which were rich with gold and stones, but was not as abundant with fruitful plants like the garden. So Adam was to go out and he was to plant these fruitful plants, give the fruitful plants, and collect collect the gold. It, it is another motivation to go out and do what God commanded, right? Um, and so all this is a model of a relationship of earth and heaven. The Eden is the abode of God, right, above the garden. And from his throne flows all the blessings of his Holy Spirit, the river that turns into four rivers that waters the whole earth, right, the outlying areas. This models for us what is needed. The abode of God is above the firmament, and the firmament is above the earth. So think about what we're saying here. Man is on earth. God is in the firmament in his throne room. And man needs to meet God in the heavenlies. He needs to meet him in the firmament. Now, we're in, we're in trouble, right? We're in trouble, especially now because this is, this is pre-fall, but we're in, we're in post-fall. We're, we're after the fall. So we're in trouble. We're earthy. We're earthly. We're not heavenly. There is the heavenly and there is the earthly. Paul makes that very clear, right? And, and what we are is not what we're becoming or what we will be becoming, right? Because we're like, we're like one kernel of corn or one kernel of wheat, depending on your translation, that falls to the ground and must die. It, 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 and it dies and it goes into the ground. But what comes forth is much, much more glorious, right? Much more glorious. So in the same way, you take one seed of corn and then you get a, you know, stalk that produces two or three ears with multiple hundreds of of kernels kernels of corn likewise we need to be able we need to be able to not be earthly but heavenly now the way we meet with god between heaven and earth is by meeting him on the cross through jesus christ so we're earthy and we're bound to earth and God is heavenly, and Jesus, the God-man, meets us, and he, and he causes us to be able to, in him, go into the heavenlies because of his cross. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are lifted up. We're lifted up to the heavenlies. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, Paul talks about meeting, meeting in Christ in the heavenlies. So we, we have that great blessing that... The God-man has took us to his cross so that we can meet the Father in the firmament. Lastly, notice that the four rivers have one source. Now, this one source points to the Holy Spirit. The four rivers are the Gospels in their four branches, corresponding to the four living creatures around the throne. Remember the four living creatures. You have, um, they have four faces, right? One, one is a, a bull or a, an ox. The next one is an eagle, the next one uh, is a lion, and the last one is a man. All right, so we, we get that. We, so these, uh, uh, th- these correspond to the living creatures. There's also four major stages in Revelation in the Scripture. So we usually break our Bible down into two different sections. We have, um, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. But um, there's actually four stages of Scripture. Um, we have the priestly section, 
which is the ox bull corresponding to Matthew's gospel. If you look at Matthew's gospel, it, it is more like the priestly. It is, it is more these things are being done with a lot of cleansing, uh, a lot of, of the ceremonial issues are being taken care of by Christ. Then there is the prophet, which is the eagle, uh, and, it, and it's seen more prominently in Mark, uh, in Mark's gospel, where um, there's a lot of proclaiming going on. Jesus is proclaiming God. You know, he is he is proclaiming the word of God. Then the kingly, which uh, of course is the lion, and we see that in Luke. And and then there's one more, which is the true man, right? The man, and 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 which you know, of course, corresponds with the man in the in the four living creatures. And we see that he is the the true man is the gospel of John because it is the one that is completely different from the other ones. The other four, in, in their differences, they, they still have this one common thing. Um, they all are synoptic. They all are telling the same events from different perspectives, with a little added here and there. But basically, they're the same events of Christ's life. John is completely different from that. He doesn't fit the synoptics. And, he, and a majority, majority of the things he tells us about Jesus' life and ministry are completely different stories than what we find in the gospels, not always. There's there's a lot of connection, but but mainly he's different. And the point of John is that the true man, Jesus Christ, has come to fulfill what we could not, because we're not true men. We're not we're not truly human, you know. Uh, anyway, these are the stages of revelation and the maturation of the church. So we often take one or two stances concerning the church. We the most popular today is that the church is merely 2,000 years old and that she started it at Pentecost. So that we have um, whatever was going on in the Old Testament in these different stages, right? And we have Israel at the end, and then um, she rejects her Messiah, and, and so she's set aside for a little while, and the church comes in, and God works through the church until he returns. Um, and that's the most popular today. Um, the second and the one the church held to for the other 1,900 years uh, of those 2,000 years is that the church started right after the fall and became the nation of Israel and then later is called the church because God gave his redeemed bride a new name, just as he promised he would. Isaiah 62, 1 and 2 says, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Get that? The mouth of the Lord will name it. Well, so that's exactly what Christ Jesus did in Matthew 16, 18. We read there, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There it is. This is the new name that the mouth of the Lord was promised to name. Christ here, like Adam later on in chapter 2 of Genesis, will do the same thing. And then after the fall, do it again, right? So after, so we have a name given, Israel, and then after the passing of the test, we have a new name, the church, whereas it corresponds to before the test, we have Isha, right, woman, the, the 
the wifely name, and then after the fall, we have Eve, right, is given the name. Uh, so this is the new name, uh, but, but we are growing up into that mature man, Jesus Christ. So this means that we are being fed at all four of these stages by the same Spirit, but we are not dealt with uh, in the same way. Uh, so follow my logic here. The stages play out in the progression uh, of, of Revelation. God progressively reveals more and more of himself and his character and, and what he expects of his church as things go by. We are first priests. Like young children, we do just exactly what we're told. Do these ceremonies in these ways at these times, right? Then we move to the prophet in which time um, we talk with God and he allows us a little freedom. Now, these are not hard and fast uh, places in the Bible where you can say, well, this is what's going on at this stage and this is what's going on at this stage. What we see is these are rolling progressive stages that make us more and more mature. Um, A good example, right, of the prophet would be where Moses and the golden calf uh, incident goes on, and thereafter, Moses tells God that his name would be profaned if he wiped out the people. So we we see that Moses here gives counsel to the Lord, and the Lord accepts it. Right? It's not it's not these prescribed things that Moses is going to give Israel to do. He's actually in the in the prophet stage at that time, and he's he's talking with God, and God is listening to him. Uh, and taking into consideration what he says. doesn't mean that God didn't know it was going to happen. It doesn't mean that he changed God's mind. In the mind of God, everything has happened already. But the thing that we need to understand is that God treats Moses as maturing, right? Then we see the kings, uh, the king age where uh, the kings act more independent and use wisdom like Solomon and David, right? And then lastly, we see the true man. This, of course, is Jesus and the New Testament revelation. Jesus is the source of all New Testament prophecy. Revelation 19.10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're being told right there, or John is being told right there, and we're getting to hear it, um, that, that Jesus is the one that has brought all prophecy in the New Testament. All prophecy in the New Testament through his apostles and prophets. Um, This really is all the time we have. I'm going really long today. Um, So I hope that this was an encouraging episode and that you will share and rate us. And if you have any questions, send uh, them to crownrightscastnet at gmail.com. That's crownrightscastnet at gmail.com. Check out our two new uh, shows, The Church is a Real Thing and The 15. Uh, And thanks for listening. As always, walk in a manner worthy of Christ to please God.